0: <laughs> and laughs Theater of the Mind The best love programs from radio's golden age Only on Zoomer Radio Now, here is your master storyteller, Frank Proctor
1: Well, thank you, and welcome to the show Tonight we begin with a show that aired in 1953 called Crime Classics The show was created, produced, and directed by radio actor and director Elliot Lewis. It was the program, an historical true crime series that examined crimes and murders from the past, and it grew out of Lewis's personal interest in famous murder cases and took a documentary-like approach to the subject, carefully recreating the facts, personages, and the feel of the time period. Comparatively, little dramatic license was taken with the facts and events, But the tragedy was leavened with a little bit of humor, expressed largely through the narration. The crimes dramatized generally covered a broad time and place frame from ancient Greece to late 19th century America. Each episode in the series was co-written by Morton Fine and David Friedkin in consultation with Lewis although the scripting process was more of a matter of research as the stories were adapted from the original court reports and newspaper accounts or from the work of historians. The cases ranged from famous assassinations of Abraham Lincoln, Leon Trotsky, and Julius Caesar, and the lives and often deaths of the like of Caesar Borgia and Blackbeard to more obscure cases such as Bathsheba Spooner, who killed her husband Joshua Spooner in 1778 and became the first woman tried and executed in America. The only continuing character was the host narrator, Thomas Hyland, played by Lou Merrill. Hyland was introduced by the announcer as a connoisseur of crime, student of violence, and teller of murders. Merrill's deadpan portrayal of Hyland provided a welcome note of tongue-in-cheek humor to the proceedings. Unlike the ghoulish, weird storytellers of The Whistler and The uh, Mysterious Traveler, Hyland was an ordinary fellow who, in a dry, droll manner, would present a tale from his files, his wry comments interspersed with dramatized scenes. The episodes would typically begin with Hyland inviting the audience to listen to a sound, from drops of rain to horses' hooves, and then introducing the main players and events of his report. The titles also contributed to the series' light tone as they were intentionally pompous and usually laced with irony. A roster of Hollywood radio actors filled the various historical roles. William Conrad, once one of the more frequently heard actors. Composer Bernard Herman returned to radio to score all but uh, one of the series, with Wilbur Hatch substituting for that entry and captured the sound and feel of various time periods simply but elegantly, often with the use of only two or three instruments per episode. And tonight's episode of Crime Classics is about a man called James Fisk. Good evening. This is Crime
2: Classics. I am Thomas Highland. I'm going to tell you another true crime story. Listen. The sound you hear is that of a man having his right-hand hook filed. It's Saturday night in London town, and he wants to be gleaming and presentable. The year is 1739, when a well-sharpened hook in London town was considered prudent, and Captain Rat, that's R-A-T-T, besides being a drunkard, a scoundrel, and a smuggler, was a prudent man. The young man handling the file is named Charles Drew, Jr., And he is performing this intimate little ironmongery because he needs a favor done. Captain Rat can help him out. He can supply the youngster with an alibi. And Junior badly needs one, for he has just shot his father dead. And tonight, my report to you on the shrapnel body of Charles Drew, Sr.
3: Crime Classics, a new series of true crime stories taken from the records and newspapers of every land, from every time. Your host each week, Mr. Thomas Highland, connoisseur of crime, student of violence, and teller of murders. Now, once again, Mr. Thomas Highland.
2: as I've told you, is 1739. And the place? Long Melford in the county of Suffolk. Long Melford was a small quiet town near London. And in it, a manor. And in the manor, a high vaulted room of roaring fire, great shadows, and flying buttresses. Directly beneath the buttress that flew toward the west, two men. Father, son. Charles Drew, Sr., Jr.
4: Son? Yes, father? Father? The time has come for you and I to have a talk.
5: I'm grateful. There are things vexing me.
4: Perhaps what I have to tell you will answer your vexation. I'm very fortunate. I've tried to be a good father. A
5: most excellent father. There's no one richer than you in Long Melford.
4: Which is what I want to talk with you about. I know. I've drawn my latest will. This.
5: What a gentle and most excellent father I have. Have you ear to what they say of you in the square?
4: No, what do they say?
5: That you are gentle and most excellent. Uh, what of the will?
4: I'm leaving everything to your five sisters. And to you sixpence. To lend, to spend, to start your fortune.
5: But, but the last will, the one before this, you left me everything. Only a kind word to my five sisters.
4: Mm. That was when you were eleven. Eleven. Now you are nineteen.
5: And a good son.
4: To whom good? To you good. Nay, to the cutthroats and smugglers with whom you cousin. It is not so. This is so, I know it. You consort with people of ill fame. And also with Mr. Richardson's housekeeper.
5: Oh, shall I explain this of Mr. Richardson's housekeeper to you? It would be well. Why, she is a most excellent housekeeper, and uh, I wish to employ her for our own household.
4: And this you have been trying to do for the last year?
5: She demands high payment.
4: Our family can afford high payment.
5: But I personally cannot, Father. Not until I inherit your fortune.
4: Hmm. And which with this new will will never be. Father. I don't scare, son. Wave that gun or... (laughs)
2: smattering of intelligence concerning 1739 ballistics. Ammunition was chiefly of two types, round or irregular. The former was manufactured by dropping chunks of molten lead from a great height, and when it reached the vat of water at the bottom of flight, it was round, due to centrifugal forces and gravity. Among men who puttered with this sort of thing, round shot was considered pretty fancy. Mostly, guns were loaded in this era by whatever iron junk was to hand. It should be recorded that Charles Drew, Jr. had stopped at a small junkyard on his way to talk with his dad. This is the reason the coroner found numerous pieces of irregular junk iron in dad's corpse. Let's see what dad's son is up to now. Scene, Ye Old Bunnery, a rundown down shop on Abernathy Lane. The time, two hours later. Principles. Charles Drew Jr. and Mr. Humphrey, Bunbaker.
6: That brings you to ye old Bannery, Charlie. I want to know a thing. And that is what?
5: Humphrey, how would you like a hundred pounds?
6: <sighs> you were saying hundred pounds? All you must do is say you killed a man. I killed a man. My hundred pounds, please. You must say you killed my father. I killed your father. My hundred. To the, the police. Charlie. Two hundred pounds
5: now, and and, two hundred pounds after you've been to the police.
6: You killed your poor old dad, Charlie? With this pistol. Huh? Leave you to be a very rich man?
5: If someone were to go to the police and said he killed my father, he would be rich too. With his neck in a gibbet. I would guarantee that the man would be released. Uh, inside of a week he would be released.
6: There are jailers who would release such a man, persuaded correctly, with enough money. A guarantee, I. Eh? I know a guarantee. Write me a confession that you killed your poor, dear old dad. I've hide it. I will go to the police and confess the deed. If I'm still in jail in a week, I will tell the jailer there to find your confession. <sighs> Wrap me up a half a dozen
5: of your excellent buns, Humphrey, and I will give you 200 pounds, plus the price of them.
2: Thereupon, Humphrey plucked a quill from his favorite goose in the back goose coop, sharpened it, and presented it to Charlie. With it, the lad wrote out his confession, paid up, and left. Humphrey waited for his wife, got permission to leave the shop, stopped at his house for a moment, then walked into the local constabulary, and made history with this statement. If you boys are looking for a corpus,
6: try 26 Bloom Street. If you're wondering what his name is, it's Charles Drew Senior. If you're wondering who did the murder on him, it's me. And my name, he's Humphrey.
2: The police, upon arriving at the appropriate room at 26 Bloom Street, understood immediately that foul play had been done. One of the constables was assigned to look in on the household of Mr. Humphrey, and there saw the Humphrey children at play at thistle de a game usually played with marbles, but by the Humphrey children, played with pieces of iron junk, which latter were of a size that could easily be rammed down the muzzle of a gun. The gun was there, too under a pillow on Mr. Humphrey's side of the bed. Mrs. Humphrey, who in the meanwhile had returned home, shook her head philosophically when apprised of the situation. It is recorded that Mrs. Humphrey's parents had both been put away as confirmed smugglers, a felony against the Crown. The next day, in jail... Nice of
6: you to visit me, Charlie. Yes. What news do you bring? When am I to be released? I... I went to see Sir Roger Firebrace. How is Sir Roger? Dead. Tis a pity, too, for he would have gotten your release in an ounce for a few hundred pounds. Don't forget, laddie. I've got your confession. You've got till Sunday.
2: Youngster, however, knew another man of note, Sir Chauncey Fenwick. Sir Chauncey was compassionate and understood the situation exactly, but unfortunately had just had one of his periodic fallings out with the magistrate's wife. But Sir Chauncey did not send the lad away empty-handed. He suggested an old sea dog named Captain Rat, uh, with two T's.
7: Um, what's the file, Mr. Drew? you be missing me. You can be scraping my wrist.
5: Oh, I'm very sorry, Captain Rat.
7: Mm-hmm. Nervous, being not you? But I, I traveled here to London to talk to you. Uh, you say Sir Fenwick sent you to me.
5: Sir Fenwick took 500 pounds and said he could do nothing with it. You're my last resort, Captain Rat.
7: Wee bit here, Mr. Drew. Aye. Now, what can old Captain Rat do for you?
5: Do you have any influential friends? What be you needing? An alibi.
7: For yourself? For a friend. Aye. tis always for a friend. What about him?
5: He confesses he killed my father.
7: And he be your friend?
5: By killing my father, he made me rich. I bear him no malice.
7: And for him, you want an alibi. Why? Why not let him rot? Why, Johnny? You you see... You kill your daddy, (laughs) Sonny.
5: Keep the hook, Captain. You almost (laughs) stuck me.
7: (laughs) Pardon, young gentleman. An alibi, you wanted it. For a friend. uh, To say what?
5: That my friend is making a mistake. That he is having hallucinations. That he did not kill my father because he was with you the night my father died.
7: And where, Mr. Drew... Will that leave you? Oh, since
5: one has confessed to the crime, it is doubtful whether I would be charged with it.
7: A sly one. Be ain't you a sly one, young gentleman. Be ain't you? Oh. <laughs> I'll travel down to the jail with you and have a talk with your friend. How's that, eh? Very good. I, uh, <clears throat> I'll need 500 pounds for expenses. Oh, I, I, yes. Now? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that is wasting a Saturday night and all Coming down here to the dungeon speaking to you, Mr. Humphrey but I don't mind.
6: And you're going to furnish me an alibi, Captain?
7: Uh, this be a strange one. I explained it all to you, Captain. You kill your dad. This one here says he done it. Now the both of you want me to see he couldn't have done it because he was with me. That lad thought it up. He's the bright one,
5: not me. My plan will work. By the time you get Humphrey out of here and the police begin to dig about again, I'll be in Paris. Lost. I will change my name and with my fortune I can... uh,
7: For your fortune, I will do it. But I gave you five hundred pounds. Bah, a pittance. Your fortune, Mr. Drew. Except what he's promised to me. What about it, lad?
6: But... No.
7: Taylor! Hey, Pleasant talking to both of you.
6: It's Saturday night, Charlie. What will you do? It's Saturday night, Charlie. I've got your confession hidden away. And tomorrow's Sunday. What will you do?
2: each other there in the dungeon, the jailed and the young visitor. And the question hung there. What would Charlie do? It's Saturday night,
6: and tomorrow is Sunday. What will you do, Charlie?
3: listening to Crime Classics and your host, Thomas Highland. Tomorrow night, hear the premiere performance of 21st Precinct, a new hard-hitting mystery series revealing the inner workings of the world's largest police force. 21st Precinct, produced by CBS Radio team that gave you gangbusters, is a program you'll want to listen for every Tuesday night on most of these same stations. Premiere performance tomorrow night on CBS Radio. And Now, once again, Thomas Highland and the second act of Crime Classics and his report to you on the shrapneled body of Charles Drew, Sr.
2: It's a short, dusty road from Long Melford to London. Not only that, but these days it's hard to find. In its day, however, it was remarkable for two things. The brothers' shoes-spooner, Dick and Harry, who embarked on a career of highwaymanship on the morn of June 3, 1735, were hung on the eve of that same day from the highest branch of an elm at a fork on Long Melford Road. The other historic feature of Long Melford Road is the fact that on a Sunday morning, a young murderer, Charles Drew Jr., and his lady love... Rode a coach down its ruts.
8: Oh, he's a ranting, roving lad. He is a brisk and a bonny lad. Be tied, what may, I will be wed. And follow the boy with the white cockade. Liz. What is it, dearie? Shut up. Everyone's singing that song, dearie. It's the rage. Please, shut up. Oh, duck, what's the matter?
5: You're the cause of it all
8: all, Duck.
5: By killing my father.
8: You wanted a way to have all his money? I told you a way to do. That's all. Yes. Oh, Duck, dearie. You'll see when we get to London what a time I'll show you. Make you forget.
5: Since I've killed him, I've done everything wrong.
8: Will you listen to Liz again? Will you? Surely I'll listen, Poodle. Oh, Duck. <laughs> Monkey. Will you listen to Liz? Surely. We get to London, we change your name, and you forget about Humphrey.
5: But if I, I don't get him out of jail tonight, he'll show the police my confession.
8: But you'll be in London. Start forgetting about him right now.
5: <laughs> Alright.
8: <laughs>
2: And so they fled to London town, little knowing that they had made a road famous. In London, they located a little-known hideaway called Bonhomme Carter's Thorny Bull Inn on the corner of Asquith and Chiswick. The lad registered under an alias Thomas Roberts. Liz, however, registered in her own name, Elizabeth Bathall. As this was going on back in Long Melford Jail where Mr. Humphrey was, there transpired this. In one hour, wifey. I'm getting out of here.
9: You be a fool. How a fool? Where'd you ever have so much money? What bun are you baking, wifey? This bun. The lad's given you money, all that money, and he's good for more. Aye.
6: I... All we want. <laughs> he's a rich one, that's true. We can get
9: more money before you show his confession.
6: How? You said he fled.
9: Is Liz told me they were off to London town. You could write him a letter and say as long as he paid you twenty pounds a day, you'd be willing to stay where you are.
6: Twenty pounds a day. That's a robbery. Oh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
9: I will go to London and find Master Drew and present him with the letter. How will you find him? Oh, I will ask here and about of him. Hmm.
6: London, eh, Barthy?
9: London.
6: What of the children?
9: Oh, Mrs. Nickelrod says she will take care of them.
6: And you alone in London?
10: Uh-huh. <laughs>
2: So, Mrs. Humphrey went to London. A few observations about Mrs. Humphrey. Wash away the flour and the excess dough, put on long sleeves to hide the muscles made prominent from bun dough, comb the hair, exchange shoes for boots, and Gertrude Humphrey was rather, uh, presentable. When she went to London, Mrs. Humphrey did all of these things, plus making a mental note not to laugh too much, not only because of the horrible sound she made, but also because of the mischievous twitch it brought on, which she could not control. So, off she went to this place, to that, to this pub, to that, asking for a Mr. Drew. I should like to comment here that in 1739, the gin was of an excellent Holland distillation. However, its chemistry had a peculiar reaction with Gertrude Humphrey. Though she fought it, and though she laughed not at the most hilarious jokes including the historically famous one about Lady Mumbly and the Troubadour, the gin caused her to twitch mischievously. This attracted to her London dandies, who plied her with more Holland gin, and who promised her help in finding Mr. Drew, and who never did. But Gertrude never lost sight of her mission, and one night in a pub in Covent Garden...
9: Mr. Mr.
2: What's your pleasure, dear?
9: Well, now, dearie. Oh, I want some gin. Uh, gin for the lady. What's
4: your name, dearie?
9: Gertie.
4: Gertie?
9: Aye.
4: Uh, is it Gertie? Pick up.
9: Uh, well, now, dearie. Is your name Drew? Is that what you want my name to be? I'm looking for Mr. Drew. Mr. Drew! Is there a Mr. Drew? Yes.
4: Oh, now, Gertie, i the one has bought you the gin. Yes,
11: my name is Drew.
9: <laughs> you ain't like the Drew I'm looking for. Well,
11: now, why do you say that? Ah, oh, here they lad. I'm the fellows bought her the gin. Here's a guinea, my lad. Find another lady who likes gin.
4: Oh. Oh, I will, thank you, Thank you. Bye, oh,
11: oh, now, now, why do you weep, pretty one? You're so beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> Always cry at beautiful things. Gin for the lady. <laughs> now, 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 stop that weeping. Ah, here's your gin. I say, mischievous wink you have.
9: Truly your name.
11: Truly, Lady Bird, it is.
9: Lady Bird. Lady Bird.
11: And you were looking for me? Lady Bird. Well, My name is Drew, and uh, you shouted for Mr. Drew. Oh, so
9: beautiful you are.
11: What do you want of me?
9: I have a letter for a man named Drew. Really? Oh, I want you to have it, I really do.
11: Then give it to me.
9: You must turn your back now. Right, you are. Yeah. Oh, you are a <laughs> oh, conniver you are? <laughs>
2: His name really was Drew, Timothy Drew. It's one of those coincidences in history which gave rise to the old saw, truth is stranger than fiction, as they say. And he was a curious man, and a proud man, jealous of his name, Drew. He had heard his name mentioned, and he was forced to find out why. He read the letter then and there. He read it again, a little later, out loud, to the police. And my missus told you have gone to London with Liz Bathol.
11: But, Charlie, my lad, you shall pay me twenty pounds a day, else I will tell that you have murdered your poor daddy. I have your paper, which you confessed you did, right where nobody but me knows where. So when my wife hands you this letter, you better give her money and find a way to keep it, uh, giving it to her, your faithful servant, Mr. Walter Humphrey. Gentlemen... Here in London is a man named Charles Drew. He has murdered his father and he bears the same surname as I. I cannot permit this deed to go unpunished.
2: Even in 1739, the London police were thorough and, goaded by the enormity of the crime and spurred and accompanied by a man whose name had been besmirched, they combed the alleys, hostelries, pubs, dens. It was late on a moist Thursday morning when Timothy Drew happened into Bonhomme Carter's Thorny Bull Inn on the corner of Asquith and Chiswick. Bonhomme Carter denied the presence of a Mr. Charles Drew, but affirmed that Eliz Liz Bathall was most certainly a guest there. He directed Timothy to Liz's chambers.
8: Who is it?
11: Open the door.
8: No games, dear. It's too early. Who is
11: it? A representative of the police.
8: Why didn't you say? May I come in? If you be the police, you can do anything, ain't that so? Thank you. I ain't done nothing.
11: Is your name Elizabeth Bathall? It is. Do you know a man named Charles Drew?
8: What's he look like? I don't know. Then how can I tell if I know him? Here, here, what sort do you take me for? There's no one in me closet. Ah!
11: What is this young man doing under your bed, madam?
8: Oh, a man? Wh- what's he...
11: Quiet, woman. Is your name Charles Drew? I'm talking to you under the bed there. Is your name Charles yes, Drew? Sir. Come out from under there, sir.
5: That's right, sir. My name is Charles Drew, sir.
11: And did you kill your father?
5: It would be a small life living as I have been. Yes, sir. Yes, I killed my father.
2: I have the original issue of a gazette dated January 22nd, 1740, from which I'd like to read. The melancholy proof that when a man has abandoned all religious principles and has suffered his depraved appetites and passions to govern his reason was shown yesterday when Charles Drew, Jr. was hanged in Long Melford. Since the hanging elm on Long Melford Road had recently been demolished to make a keel for the British Navy, a new gibbet was erected. This gibbet was equipped with a new mechanical device invented by Mr. Douglas Langford of Eastburn. Mr. Langford is to be congratulated.
3: just a moment, Thomas Highland will tell you about next week's crime classic. The shrapnel body of Charles Drew, Sr., tonight's crime classic, was adapted from the original court reports and newspaper accounts by Morton Fine and David Friedkin. The music was adapted from Themes of the Period and conducted by Bernard Herman, and the program is produced and directed by Elliot Lewis. Thomas Highland is portrayed on radio by Lou Merrill. Charles Drew, Jr. was played by Terry Kilburn and Liz by Betty Harford. Featured in the cast were Paul Fries, Van Wright, Irene Tedrow, William Johnstone, and Anthony Ellis. Bob LeMond speaking. And here again is Thomas Highland. Next week,
2: the office directly below that occupied by Oliver Wendell Holmes is the scene of a catastrophe. The place, Harvard Medical School, the time, 1849. My report, on the terrible deed of Dr. Webster.
1: Thank you. Good night. Stay tuned for Our Miss Brooks next on Theatre of the Mind. Time now for Our Miss Brooks, who sounds like she suffers from Triskaidekaphobia, the fear of Friday the 13th.
12: For your entertainment and pleasure, here is Our Miss Brooks, starring Eve Arden. Brooks, written by Al Lewis. Well, Friday fell on the 13th of the month, a day of caution for the superstitious. But to our Miss Brooks, who teaches English at Madison High School, it didn't mean a thing.
13: No, indeed. Even when my landlady told me at breakfast that our cat Minerva came home with
14: two black kittens, I just laughed and said, Mrs. Davis, no. Oh, yes. Yes. They've just had our last drop of milk. But Minerva and I were always so friendly. She didn't say a word to me about
13: this.
14: (laughs) Oh, the kittens aren't Minervas. I don't know where they belong. All I know is that we can't afford to keep them. It would mean two more mouths to feed. You're right, Mrs. Davis. We've got enough trouble feeding the mouths we've got. (laughs) (laughs) Say, I've got an idea. We could leave them in the Snodgrass Pet Shop until we located the owners. Stretcher's father has all sorts of things in his place. That's true. He even has Stretch.
10: <laughs> Good old
14: Stretch. That boy certainly is a fine
13: athlete. Yes, he is. Now, if there was only some way we could find to exercise his brain. <laughs> Don't worry about the kittens, Mrs. Davis. I'll have Walter Denton drop them off at the pet shop on our way to school this morning. Good.
14: And one more thing, Connie. Would you deliver this jar to Mr. Conklin when you get to school? Certainly, Mrs. Davis. What have you cooked up for our beloved principal? (laughs) It's a secret concoction, Connie. My own recipe. It never fails. Good. How long does it take to work, and will they find out what's in it at the autopsy? (laughs) (laughs) It's just a remedy for hiccups, Connie. It contains nothing but juniper juice, oil of cloves, a dash of vinegar, some vanilla extract, a spoonful of baking soda... Uh, tell me a... the rest after breakfast.
10: <laughs> well, that's about
14: all there is to it. But it's very good. Mrs. Conklin says it's just a nervous reaction. She called last night and told me he got the hiccups yesterday, just a few minutes after he found out that the superintendent of schools is visiting him this afternoon. Mr. Michaels? Why should he give Mr. Conklin the hiccups? Well, there's a new term starting, and it seems that Mr. Michaels wants to chat with Osgood about the way he's running Madison. You mean if Mr. Michaels
13: finds fault with something, there's a chance that Mr. Conklin may not be. Oh, now cut it out, Connie. You're too old to live in a dream world.
14: <laughs> oh, that's Walter Denton. Come in, Walter. Oh, I'd better go into the kitchen. I've got to clean those dishes I used for the kitten's milk. Why don't you let Minerva do the dishes? They're her friends. <laughs> Hi, Miss Brooks. Did I hear Mrs.
13: Davis mention kittens? Just some trench and acquaintances, Walter. We're going to drop them off at Stretch's pet shop on the way to school. Oh, swell. Stretch will get a big kick out of him. He loves animals. All kinds of animals. I know. You've been friends for years, haven't you? <laughs> You're not superstitious, Walter, but these are both black cats, and today is Friday the 13th. Oh, that
15: doesn't bother me, Miss Brooks. This is going to be a red-letter day in my memory. The day when the results of careful planning should be brought to fruition. Translation? Well, you've heard of Cure That Habit Incorporated, haven't you? You mean the outfit that helps people overcome alcoholism? Yes, ma'am. got a big ad in the papers. You know... Perhaps you or someone near and dear to you is a victim of this dread disease. Send for our instructive literature telling how you
13: too can be cured.
15: Well, day before yesterday, I sent for it.
13: You, Walter? I always thought you were strictly a a two-coke-a-day man.
15: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I didn't sign my name and address to the request. I printed the name of someone very near and dear
13: to me. Who?
15: Osgood Conklin. (laughs)
13: Conklin doesn't drink. Why, even on New Year's Eve, he just had fruit punch. His proudest boast is that he's a teetotaler. Well, that's the humor of it. When he gets all
15: this stuff in the mail, he'll think that somebody somewhere doesn't believe that he doesn't drink. That thought
13: alone should turn him purple. It would probably be quite a picturesque spectacle. But I still don't think it's right, Walter. Does Harriet know about this rib? Of course not. She's his daughter. She likes Mr. Conklin. (laughs) She's bright in other ways. <laughs> now, come on, Walter. We've got to get started for school if we're going to drop those kittens off. Okay, Miss Brooks. Oh, uh, one thing before we go.
15: Everything I've told you today is strictly confidential. And not that I'm asking for an oath of secrecy or anything. I know that I couldn't possibly feel the admiration and respect for you that I do feel if I thought you'd rat on me. I mean, uh, betray my confidence about this joke that I'm for.
13: Well, don't worry, Walter. Your secret is safe with me.
15: Miss Brooks, that statement makes me feel warm all over. Really? Sure. In a dangerous practical joke like this, it's great to know that somebody else is in it with you up to her ears.
12: Sorry to have kept you waiting, Mr. Chalmers. What can I do for you?
16: Well, Mr. Michaels, as superintendent of schools, you're acquainted, no doubt, with the principal of Madison High School. Oh,
12: yes, that's Osgood Conklin. Matter of fact, I'm going to see him this afternoon. Then I'd very much like to go with you.
16: You see, Mr. Michaels, my son attends Madison High, and I'm very anxious to find out the meaning of this postcard which arrived at my office this morning. Postcard? Yes, sir. I'll, I'll read it to you. It's addressed to Cure That Habit, Incorporated. That's my firm, Mr. Michaels. And it says, uh, kindly send me all your literature. I am determined once and for all to rid myself of the curse of alcoholism. It's signed, Osgood Conklin.
13: I should have known that the Snodgrass Pet Shop doesn't open until nine. What in the world are we going to do with these kittens, Walter? Gosh, I don't know, Miss Brooks. Mr. Conklin's awfully strict about
15: pets in the building. The only animals allowed are in Mr. Boynton's lab. Oh, say,
13: we could keep them in there until lunch period. That's right. Then Stretch could take them over to his dad's shop. Come on, Walter, let's take them in. Wait a minute, where are the kittens? I've got
15: them in my sweater pocket. See, uh, here's one. Meow. And, uh,
13: here's the other one So much for Maxine and Laverne Hello, Miss Brooks Hello, Patty I mean, Harriet Hey, Harriet uh, I gotta run now I'll talk to you later Okay, Walter How does your dad feel, Harriet? Are the hiccups
15: gone? Yes, Miss Brooks They disappeared about an hour ago but I'm afraid it isn't permanent.
13: Every time something unpleasant happens, it brings them on again. Well, maybe this remedy that Mrs. Davis sent down will be of some help. I'd better take it in to him right now. All right, Miss Brooks. See you in class. Come in. It's me, Mr. Conklin.
12: Oh, Miss Brooks.
13: <laughs> <laughs> well, they're back. Who's back? Pick <laughs>
12: Does that answer your question?
13: Maybe you should see a doctor, Mr. Conklin.
12: Saw a doctor yesterday. Hiccup!
13: <laughs>
12: told me to relax, and they go away. Relax. Hiccup! <laughs> What's in that jar you've got there?
13: It's a hiccup cure that Mrs. Davis asked me to give you. She made it herself. What's in it? Nothing but juniper juice, oil of cloves, a dash of vinegar, some vanilla extract, and baking soda. I'd
12: rather have the hiccup. <laughs>
13: you haven't got anything else handy, maybe you ought to try some of Mrs. Davis's remedy.
12: Well, I might take just one swallow of the stuff. Give it here. Uh, mm.
13: Well, Mr. Conklin, what does it taste like?
12: Well, it tastes like... <laughs> like... <laughs> like... <laughs> like...
13: <laughs> What's the difference as long as it does the job? <laughs>
12: Brooks, starring Eve Arden, will continue in just a moment. But first... The first...
13: Well, after giving Mr. Conklin an antidote for Mrs. Davis's hiccup remedy, I returned to my classroom and whiled away the hours before lunch by teaching a bit of English. Promptly at noon, I found myself, by the amazing coincidence which occurs daily, at Mr. Boynton's biology lab...
17: Come in. Oh, it's you, Miss Brooks. I'm glad you dropped in. Very glad indeed.
13: Honestly, Mr. Boynton?
17: I should say so. You've got to get these cats out of here.
13: Oh. So <laughs> well, don't worry about that. Walter Denton has asked Stretch to pick them up and take them to the Snodgrass Pet Shop. Oh, good. Where are they, Mr. Boynton?
17: Well, I had to keep them over here in a separate cage, away from the white mice. They uh, they were pretty upset.
13: Cats do that to mice, as a rule. <laughs> well,
17: here they are. Yeah. This one loves to be petted. (laughs) So does this one, for that matter.
12: (laughs) Oh, Mr. Boynton, I... Oh, excuse me, Miss Brooks. I didn't mean to interrupt. Oh,
13: that's all right, Stretch.
12: Oh, I don't mind waiting if you want to finish your song.
13: (laughs) (laughs) No, thanks. I don't know the rest of the words, anyway.
12: Are these the cats Walter wants me to take down to the shop? Oh, that's right, Stretch. You think you can handle them all right? Oh, sure. I love animals. Gosh, I think animals are smarter than a lot of people of whom I'm acquainted with.
13: <laughs> I know they're smarter than some people of whom I'm acquainted with. Before
12: I take the cats, Mr. Boynton, I'd like to talk to you about a swap. You got a bullfrog in here I'd like to show my dad.
17: Well, you don't mean my pet McDougal.
12: Oh, no, sir. I know you wouldn't let Mac out of your sight. I mean this big fellow over here. Hiya, boy. Hiya, big fella. You <laughs> see, he knows me. Say more, fella.
13: <laughs> he certainly talks your language.
12: If you'll let me have him, Mr. Boynton, I'll give you Clarence. Clarence? I got him right here in my pocket.
17: There he is. Shh! Ah! Don't be scared. He's perfectly harmless, isn't he, Mr. Boynton? Oh, yes, of course. It's completely non-poisonous, Miss Brooks. This little creature's a milk snake.
12: That's right, Miss Brooks. Just a little old milk snake. Must take a pretty shallow bucket. (laughs) (laughs) He couldn't possibly hurt anyone, Miss
17: Brooks. He's just a baby.
13: That doesn't prove anything. When I was a baby, I bit people all the time. (laughs) Take him away, Stretch,
17: please. Well, yes, Stretch, you keep the snake and uh, take the frog along, too.
12: Gee, thanks, Mr. Boynton. I'll take awful good care of him. Don't forget the kittens, Stretch. Well, I won't. Let's see now. It's a good thing I wore my sport jacket today. I can put the kittens in the side pockets, the frog in an inside pocket, and Clarence in my breast pocket.
13: Too bad you're not a kangaroo. You could give me a lift to the cafeteria. (laughs)
12: Oh, I'm not going to the cafeteria. i got to go to the principal's office and clean it up. Mr. Conklin's expecting some high brass down.
13: You mean the chandelier's loose? (laughs) No,
12: ma'am. The superintendent of schools is coming here. And that reminds me, Mr. Conklin says that you should inspect his office as soon as I get through and see that everything's spick and span. Me? That's right, Miss Brooks. Well, i better get going. Thanks for the keen frog, Mr. Boynton. Oh, you're welcome, Stretch. See you in a little while,
17: Miss Brooks.
13: Oh, that's just dandy. Now I won't be able to accept your charming invitation to lunch, Mr. Boynton.
17: What invitation? Oh, oh you mean to lunch? Oh. <laughs> Gee, Miss Brooks, maybe you could have a quick lunch with me and then inspect Mr. Conklin's office.
13: I hate to disappoint you, Mr. Boynton, but that's just what I'm going to do.
12: <laughs> the last window's clean. Mr. Conklin's office looks neat as a pin. Don't you think so, Miss Brooks? Let's
13: see. Yes, it looks very nice, Stretch. Mr. Conklin should be very pleased when he gets back from lunch.
12: Well, oh, I hope so. Now I'll put my jacket back on and get these animals back to the. Hey, wait a minute! They're gone. Who's gone? Everybody. <laughs> the, kittens, the frog and the snake. They must have crawled out of my pockets when I put my jacket down.
13: Oh no! Well, they must be in the office somewhere. We've got to find them before. M- well, let's
12: see how the place looks,
13: Mr. Conklin. Ah, you've done a very nice job,
12: Stretch. Well, thanks, Mr. Conklin. You can but run along now. Miss Brooks, you will stay here and help me find some papers. Yes, sir. But, Mr. Conklin... I've already thanked you, snodgrass. Now go. (laughs) Now then, Miss Brooks, I've been trying to locate the semi-annual report I made to the Board of Education six months ago. Will you kindly look in the top drawer of my desk while I try the closet here?
13: Very well, Mr. Conklin. (laughs) Uh, It's not in there.
12: You hardly looked, Miss Brooks.
13: I saw enough.
12: Not in here either. Oh, it must be in this drawer. Let me look for myself. You were right, Miss Brooks. There's nothing in there but a cat. Well, maybe it's in this other drawer. No, just another cat. Well, in that case, I'll simply have.
10: Just another cat!
12: cats doing in my desk.
13: Maybe they're looking for the
12: report, too.
13: Uh, they, they might have strayed in through an open window, Mr. Conklin. I'll have them removed it, at once. Well,
12: see that you do. But first, go look in my filing cabinet. Yes, sir. Uh, look under letter B. Yes, sir. Uh.
13: What are you doing in here? You should be filed under F. <laughs> it's not in here, Mr.
12: Conklin. Well, it must be somewhere. Let me look. Uh, what's in this badge? would uh, see, one letter from Boys Town, my beaver patrol badge, one communication from the board, <clears throat> one frog, <laughs> an invitation to the Elks Barbecue, another notice of a board meeting, a letter from One Frog! <laughs> Miss Brooks, there's a frog hopping around my filing cabinet. Frog? <laughs> yes, he's jumping all over the place. What'll I do, Miss Brooks?
13: Why don't you hit him with the snake that's crawling on your coat lapel?
12: That's a good idea. I'll just take this snake and then I'll
13: take this snake. Here, Mr. Conklin, just file him under
12: arrest. What's going on here, Miss Brooks? Look, look, this mark on my hand. That snake bit me.
13: I'm poisoned. Oh, but Mr. Conklin, he I've couldn't...
12: got to be inoculated. Quick, take me to the first aid room. <laughs>
13: chair and relax for a minute, Mr. Conklin. I'll be right back.
12: As you say, Miss Brooks. Fire, oh, Miss Brooks. I got all the animals out of Mr. Conklin's office. Good.
13: For a while there, he thought the snake bit him, but I've convinced Mr. Conklin that the mark on his hand is just a bruise. In fact, I was looking for some rubbing alcohol, but they seem to be out of it in first aid.
12: Well, I'll get you some over at the gym, but first I'd like to cheer Mr. Conklin up a bit. Hi, Mr. Conklin. Let's see your hand. There. All black and blue. (laughs) There ain't nothing at all, Mr. Conklin. The skin ain't even broke. You got nothing to worry about. Thank you, doctor. (laughs) Now that... Now that... There they are again.
13: Oh, don't worry about them, Mr. Conklin.
12: I didn't expect you'd be concerned, Miss Brooks.
13: Well, frankly, after hearing nothing but... And all day, it's a relief <laughs> oh,
12: to know, a sure cure for hiccups, Mr. Conklin. Now, oh, just sit back in that swivel chair for a minute. I am sitting back. Swell. Now, the idea is to start spinning you around slowly. Yeah, uh, uh, Stretch, stop that. But never that. fail. Stretch,
13: you mustn't spin, Mr. Conklin, like that.
12: I know, we got to spin them faster. Oh, no, Stretch!
13: Stretch go me. Stop this once, you
12: hear me? Stretch, me, nice, Stretch stop! Uh, there Daddy, I've been looking all over for you Who are these girls who just came in?
10: Oh, it's me, Daddy, Harriet
13: Oh, Mr. Michaels is waiting for you in your office
12: Oh, oh, thank you, Harriet Just get up and... Oh, oh, I can hardly stand, I'm so dizzy
13: Maybe you ought to spin around the other way for a while
12: Well, let me help you, Mr. Conklin. I'll deal with you later, boy Meanwhile, Miss Brooks, you go ahead and tell Mr. Michaels I'll be right there I'll lean on Harriet and stretch until I feel a little stronger.
16: So you see, Mr. Michaels, I certainly wouldn't want my boy in a school run by someone who had to
12: come to my firm for assistance. I'm sure there must be some mistake, Mr. Chalmers. I've known Osgood Compton for a good many years, and whatever else he may be, he's not a drinking man.
13: Good day, gentlemen. I'm Miss Brooks. Mr. Conklin will be here in a minute.
12: I'm Mr. Michaels, Miss Brooks, and this is Mr. Chalmers. How do you do?
13: How
12: do you do? Uh, tell me, Miss Brooks, uh, how is Mr. Conklin feeling these days?
13: Feeling? Yes. Oh, just fine. He's never been better.
12: Good. You see, Mr. Chalmers, I'm sure that one look at Mr. Conklin will convince you that he's not the type of person who sends postcards to cure that habit, Incorporated. Hello, Mr. Michaels. Sorry I'm late. <laughs>
13: You up, Mr. Conklin?
12: I uh, must have tripped, Mr. Michaels. And who are these gentlemen with you?
13: These gentlemen are Mr. Chalmers. <laughs> shake hands with the one in the middle.
12: <laughs> Pleasure to know you, Mr. Chalmers. Don't look now, but that's Mr. Michaels. Mm-hmm. He is <laughs> Mr. Chalmers. Oh, of course. <clears throat> Glad to shake your hand, Mr. Chalmers.
13: You're shaking his umbrella. What seems
12: to be the
16: matter, Mr. Conklin? Having trouble with your
12: vision? Uh, Yes, yes, that's it. I broke my glasses this morning. Well, I'll get over here and (laughs) sit down at my desk.
16: Michael's looking in a stagger.
12: Incredible. Miss Brooks, you said Mr. Conklin never felt better. That's
13: right. You should have seen him an hour ago. (laughs) Boy, what hiccups.
12: (laughs) Hiccups? Yes, yes. I always get them when I'm startled. And uh, what may I ask, startled you?
13: He opened his desk drawer this morning and saw a cat in it.
12: Tell me, Mr. Conklin... In which drawer did you, uh, see the cat? Well, the first cat I saw was in this drawer. In this drawer, Mr. Conklin? No, no, there's another cat in there. (laughs) It was the one in here that startled me. Uh, Would you mind showing us your cats, Mr. Conklin? Not at all. They're right here in these drawers. Uh, uh, why, they're gone. They come and they go, Mr. Cox? Miss... Miss Brooks, where are the
16: cats?
13: They disappeared right after I took you to first aid. But he really did see them, gentlemen.
12: Indeed. The next thing you'll be trying to tell us is that he found a bullfrog in his filing cabinet. (laughs) How did you know? (laughs) Bullfrog, too? There must be some error here.
13: Yes, he was filed under B instead of F. (laughs)
12: Well, Mr. Michaels, do you believe me now? I'm afraid I do, Mr. Chandler. Compton, I don't want to seem unnecessarily cruel, but if you want to stay on as principal of this... Pardon me, folks. Here's your alcohol, Mr. Conklin. I'll
13: take it, (laughs) sir.
12: Miss Brooks, that alcohol is for Mr. Compton?
13: Yes, it's for where the snake bit him. (laughs) (laughs) Snake? Yes, of course, it it really didn't bite him. He just thought it did.
16: Oh, so you saw a
12: snake too, Mr. Conklin? Yes, yes, I did, right on my lapel. Although I'm told that he's not poisonous, snakes still give me an extremely unpleasant feeling. I assure you that if I ever see him again, I wait a minute. There he is under your chair, Mr. Chalmers. Look out! I'll get him, Mister. I'll get him. I can... There. Good for
13: you, Mr. Conklin. You have just killed Mr. Chalmers' umbrella. <laughs>
12: This man is dangerous. I'll go with you, Mr. Chalmers. As for you, Mr. Compton, I'll talk to you again when you're sober. Sober? Mr. Chalmers here is the head of Cure That Habit Incorporated. Oh, no. This card he received yesterday will explain why he called on me this morning. Good day. Cure This Habit Incorporated? What has that got to do with me? Miss Brooks, read this card for me.
13: It says, Kindly send me all your literature. I am determined once and for all to rid myself of the curse of alcoholism. And it's signed, Osgood Conklin. Poor
12: soul. (laughs) Any man who has to resort to writing in it.
13: Didn't write this postcard because I know who did, but it was only a little Friday the Thirteenth joke, and I'm honor bound not to mention who did it.
12: Oh, you are. <laughs> well, Miss Brooks, such loyalty is worthy of a better fate than the one under which you are about to crumble. <laughs> you see, you and I have traveled the road of learning together for some time now. It hasn't always been a smooth road, but it's been our road, Miss Brooks. <laughs> Now, do you know what's in store for you?
13: I believe I do, Mr. Conklin. Pass me the rubbing alcohol.
12: The rubbing alcohol?
13: Yes, I might as well have one for the road.
12: Eve Arden, is our Miss Brooks, returns in just a moment, but...
3: Now, once again, here is our Miss Brooks.
13: Well, much to my surprise, Mr. Conklin didn't dismiss me on the spot. But he did insist that I report to his office immediately after school. On my arrival, he told me we were going down to Mr. Michaels' office immediately. But, Mr. Conklin, what good will that
12: do? If you won't tell me who sent that card in, perhaps you'll tell the superintendent of schools. Now, wait. Right where you are, Miss Brooks, I'm going to get my hat and coat out of the club.
15: Yes, Mr. Conklin. Hiya, Miss Brooks. Gee, I'm glad Mr. Conklin's not here. Walter, wait Look a minute. Look at this. Here's an ad for another one of those liquor cures I'm going to sign his name to. Boy, I wish I could see his face when he finds out about this one.
3: I'll bet he'll be
12: positively purple.
15: <laughs> no, purple isn't the word for it. Old Marblehead will turn all the colors of the rainbow. oh, 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 oh,
10: oh. now?
13: There's only one thing you can do, plead insanity.
12: Our Miss Brooks starring Eve Arden was produced and directed by Larry Burns, written by Arthur Alsberg and Al Lewis with the music of Lud Bluskin. Mr. Conklin was played by Gail Gordon. This program came to you from the Frankfurt Studios of the American Forces Network Europe and was prepared for rebroadcast over this network by Specialist Ed Barron.
1: Thank you for listening. Tomorrow night, it's Escape, followed by Phil Harris and Alice Fay. And we thank Paul Stringer and Joel Schoenwell for technical support. The executive producer for Theater of the Mind is Moses Neimer. I'm Frank Proctor. Have a great night.
0: This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.